This is the Energy Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration, only on MarketScale. That's what's going to be, I think, truly transformational to a lot of businesses, and hydrogen fuel cells enable a lot of use cases with batteries. By covering the surfaces in floating solar PV panels, you can not only generate electricity on site, you can actually purify the water. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast. I'm your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the program. Today's episode is going to focus on two different types of energy, and our correspondent Sam Kingma got to have some insightful interviews on both topics. And so today we're going to look at solar energy and nuclear fusion. And so today we're going to start off with a conversation with Dr. Zachary Holman. He's an assistant professor over at Arizona State University, and he's going to talk about the current efficiency limits and how new tandems are being created to improve the efficiency limit and how better solar panels will benefit fit our world going forward. So I think that's going to be a really insightful conversation. Uh, most solar panels right now aren't even close to taking advantage of the full power that of the sun that that provides. So they only have an efficiency of about 25%. So there's a lot that can be done in that area to improve on what is currently in the market. After that, he's going to talk to Dr. Lee Winfrey, Associate Professor of Nuclear Energy over at Penn State University, and she's going to join to discuss the increased interest in nuclear fusion and how 2019 is really shaping up to be a big year for that particular industry. She's going to talk about how fusion can output a ton of energy, as well as being very, very safe and a clean form of energy, Uh, but nuclear scientists really haven't been able to tap the full potential of fusion energy due to its insanely high heat requirements necessary to keep it running. So there are some challenges there to overcome uh, for this safe and clean form of energy. We just have to unlock those challenges a little bit. So Dr. Lee Winfrey is going to join to talk about that today coming up on the Market Scale Energy Podcast. Without further ado, let's get to that conversation that our own Sam Kingma had with Dr. Zachary Holman, Assistant Professor over at Arizona State University. All right. Joining us on the Market Scale Energy Podcast is Dr. Zachary Holman, Assistant Professor over at Arizona State University, here to talk to us about efficiency in solar panels. Zach, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, Sam. Oh, my pleasure. So I wanted to start this interview off by getting to know you a bit better. So what do you research over at Arizona State? The majority of our research is uh, on solar cells, um, silicon solar cells originally, but now we've diversified. We have projects on cadmium telluride solar cells, perovskite 3.5 solar cells, and putting these together in what we call tandems, uh, which are multiple types of solar cells stacked on top of each other. And our primary goal is to uh, increase efficiency for uh, reasons I'll tell you a bit more um, about later. Yeah, I actually really wanted to talk to you about efficiency. So can you just sort of explain uh, to me and the audience what efficiency means in this context of your work and why it matters? Yeah, absolutely. So when we talk about efficiency of solar cells or modules, uh, which are the, the panels into which solar cells go, We're talking about the conversion of the uh, power in sunlight uh, to electrical power. And so we we take the electrical uh, power output of a solar uh, cellar module, we divide it by the uh, incoming light power, photon power we would call it, and that number, which is always less than 100%, is the efficiency. Now um, the reason it matters is because it's a major cost driver for um, solar electricity. So uh, if I were to go install solar panels on my home right now, um, about only 20% of the total cost I would pay is for the the technology, the solar modules. 
The other 80% of the cost are what we call balance of systems, and that's everything else. It's the permitting, it's the uh, racking, that is to say the hardware that connects the panels to my rooftop. It's the engineering to make sure that I don't have a panel that uh, overlaps with the chimney um, and uh, things like that. So that balance of systems presently costs 80%. That wasn't true five years or t 10 years ago. Uh, it's uh, a new situation that we, we have for the last couple of years since the cost of panels have decreased very rapidly. They've become incredibly cheap, um, about 70 bucks per square meter uh, or 10 foot of panel. And um, meanwhile, the balance of system costs have not come down so much. Now here's where efficiency comes in. Um, in a s scenario like this, if I'm gonna install panels on my house and I gotta pay you know, 80, 80% regardless of which type of panels I put up, I wanna put the panels uh, that produce the most electricity. Um, that is to say the highest efficiency panel. Uh, and when I do that, my overall cost goes down because I've paid almost the same price for the total system as if I put in cheap panels, but I'm getting a lot more uh, electricity out. So this is why efficiency matters um, and uh, we still have a lot of research to do even at universities for um, for solar power. And just uh, how do you go about like actually specifically measuring something's like level of efficiency? The uh, we, we do that um, under a solar simulator which is a light source that um, is a lot like the sun at noon in Arizona. It's pretty intense sunlight and it has a certain spectrum. Uh, we can measure how much power is coming from the light and then we uh, connect um, electrical leads and we measure how much electrical power is coming out of the solar panel or solar cell when it's sitting underneath the light and we take the ratio of those two things. Now, switching gears a bit, why is silicon reaching its efficiency limit? Yeah, silicon, uh, which is uh, refined from sand, um, makes up 90% of the photovoltaics market, the solar market. So any panel that you see that's got that blue color, those are silicon. And um, that's been the, the workhorse of the PV industry for years and years and will probably continue to be, um, at least for another decade. And uh, it has a maximum theoretical efficiency of just under 30%. That is to say, we can only convert 30% of the power of the sun into electricity. And the reason is because um, silicon and all other semiconductors um, are best at converting just one wavelength or color of light. Meanwhile, our sun puts out all wavelengths of light, a broad spectrum. So if I were to shine the right color laser light at silicon, I could convert something like 50 or 60% of the uh, power into electricity. But as long as I'm using our sun as my uh, incoming uh, energy source, power source, I'm limited to something like 30%. Now, the highest efficiency solar cell um, that's silicon solar cell that's um, ever been made is now at about 27% efficiency. So that, uh, that difference, the, the remainder that we have left to squeak out between 27 and a bit less than 30 is is pretty narrow and that means the industry has a pretty clear path to um, the highest efficiency that they could take silicon to and so we have to look to new technologies like these tandems that I mentioned earlier to, to go beyond. Yeah and actually I want to move into tandems so you mentioned it earlier but if you can explain again what what uh, are tandems and how do they let us surpass uh, the efficiency limit of silicon or anything else that might come along in the future. 
Absolutely, great question. So uh, a tandem, as the name suggests, is two different types of solar cells um, stacked together. The way we do it is we put a solar cell that is most efficient at converting, let's say, uh, green light. Remember I said that uh, the individual materials like only one wavelength of light. On top of a solar cell that is converting, good at converting, let's say, red or infrared light. Actually, silicon is a great candidate for, for that second cell, which we would call the bottom cell. Now what happens is the incident light hits that first cell. That first cell converts um, all the green light, and in fact the blue light as well, but the longer wavelengths, the more redder colors, it transmits. So that light goes through and arrives at the silicon cell, which likes those colors. Um, so what we've done is um, we've taken the broad solar spectrum and we've fed bits of it uh, to solar cells that like exactly those bits. And so in order to, to make these tandems, we have to have uh, two different semiconductor materials with complementary properties. One that likes to absorb and convert green light, one that likes to absorb and convert infrared light, and again, silicon is a good choice already uh, for that second one. So basically, you're taking multiple pieces that are good at transmitting one of the sun's many types of rays and basically co combining them together sort of to get the best of best of what both can do. Yep, I would only change one word about what you said. Instead of mm -hmm. uh, transmitting, I would say converting to electricity. Converting. Yep, exactly. Now, what are some of the challenges in finding or coming up with new tandems? Yeah, so the challenge is finding that right complementary material to go on top of silicon, the so-called top cell. It has the it needs to have properties that a lot of existing semicon semiconductor materials uh, don't have. For those in the business, we would say it needs to have a band gap of 1.7 or 1.8 electron volts. Probably more information that you need, but let me tell you what's already out there. We've got materials that have that property, are good at absorbing and converting those green and visible wavelengths, but are super expensive. And when I say super expensive, I mean tens of thousands of dollars per square meter. <laughs> so those materials are used on uh, very specialized, high-efficiency um, solar cells that you know power NASA's space missions, but we could never uh, afford to use them uh, on our homes. Now, there's an emerging set of material um, called perovskites, and um, those are named after um, a scientist. And those materials... Um, we're just discovering can be made with the right uh, properties, and they're much less expensive. However, they have other challenges. Uh, first, we have to show that we can make a high-efficiency solar cell, top solar cell, to put on top of silicon with them. And then second, they, they seem to be uh, less stable than um, the, the super expensive but well-working uh, version of a top cell. Uh, when I mean less stable, I mean that they, they decompose, they change their properties um, when exposed to oxygen or water vapor. And uh, oftentimes this process is enhanced by exposure to light. That's, of course, bad news for a solar cell to degrade when you stick it under light. So that gives you a little bit of the landscape of the materials that are out there that we're choosing from that we're trying to make better in our uh, tandem solar cell research. Now... You mentioned earlier on that currently like solar panels are about 70 bucks per square meter and it wasn't always that way, way. they were much more expensive but 
the sort of price of the materials got cheaper over time. Do you think that'll happen with the really good, really expensive material that you could use to make a, a tandem to in- increase the efficiency of solar panels? If that material had just shown up, um, you know, on researchers' radars five years ago, then I'd say probably. However, these are materials that we've been working with um, for several decades. And there have been lots of attempts to bring down the cost of those materials. And uh, for those listeners who might know, I'm talking about 3-5 materials such as gallium arsenide. Um, And those those attempts to bring down their costs have been somewhat successful, but nowhere down near the level we need. That's not to say that um, researchers aren't still trying to do it. So the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, for example, in Golden, Colorado, um, has a great approach that they're working on to bring down those costs. Um, There's a company called Alta Devices out of California, started by uh, professors at uh, Caltech and Berkeley. And um, they claim that they have an approach that will also bring down those costs. But um, at this point in time, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, but still skeptical. All right, I have one more question for you, and it's kind of a big idea, and it's how will the increase in efficiency improve our world? Yeah, so um, the increase in efficiency um, that you're talking about, let's say we're imagining beyond 30%. So my my, uh, collaborators and I recently demonstrated Mm -hmm. a silicon-based tandem that has a perovskite material. That's the one that that has degradation challenges and is emerging at 25.4% efficiency. And we see uh, a pathway to 30% and, and beyond. Now, if we can break 30% efficiency and we can show that these materials are stable and we can scale this uh, technology uh, so that it can make it out into the marketplace, what it'll eventually do um, is it'll mean that uh, solar electricity is cheaper. And the reason we care about it being cheaper is because it um, accelerates the rate at which solar power is deployed in the U.S. and around the world. So, for example, there was a study in the U.S. that showed that in a business-as-usual scenario, uh, in 2030, we will have something like 5% of U.S. electricity generated by solar. But if we can cut the cost of um, solar electricity uh, not quite in half, and that sounds like a lot, but actually that's, that's not a huge cost reduction based on the, on the way things have been going for the last 10 years. Anyway, if we can cut the costs um, by 2030, then we have a projected 17% of U.S. electricity coming um, from solar. And of course, that translates into um, not only you know, reduced costs for, for electricity that we use in, in our homes and in our businesses, but it also uh, translates into uh, clean power that doesn't have um, greenhouse gases uh, or coal ash or anything else uh, associated with it. So that's, that's where we're trying to go. That's how we're trying to ch- change the world here. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on, Zach. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe for previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Sam Kingma, and you have a fantastic rest of your day.
Thank you again to Dr. Zachary Holman, Assistant Professor at Arizona State University, for joining to talk about solar energy today and how we can more efficiently use that alternative source of clean power. Okay, coming up next is the conversation with Dr. Lee Winfrey. She's the Associate Professor of Nuclear Engineering at Penn State University, and she's going to join us to talk about the increased interest in nuclear fusion and how 2019 is teeing up to be a huge year for fusion and some of the concerns and challenges presented in this particular form of energy. So that is coming up next here on the Market Scale Energy Podcast. Today, we're talking to Lee Winfrey, Associate Professor of Nuclear Engineering over at Pennsylvania State University, talking all things nuclear fusion. Lee, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. So I wanted to start this interview off because I find fusion energy to be fascinating. Could you explain sort of in layman's terms to the audience what fusion energy actually is? Sure. So fusion energy is the type of energy that actually powers our sun. Um, and so fusion is actually when you combine smaller atoms together to make larger atoms, and then you get a little bit of energy back from them. And can you contrast that with sort of the nuclear energy that most uh, people are familiar with, which is nuclear fission? Right. So nuclear fission is exactly the opposite of fusion in that nuclear fission takes larger atoms like uranium and splits them into smaller pieces. And again, you get a little bit of energy back from that. Now, why is it so hard to achieve fusion energy where we've been using fission for, you know, quite a bit of time now? So fusion energy is pretty hard to achieve because basically at the end of the day, what you need to do is you need to take two positive things and put them together. So if you think about, you know, when you're a kid and you play with refrigerator magnets and you try and push, you know, two of the positive ends together, it's really hard to do. So when you want to overcome that force, you need to get it to incredibly high temperatures. And so the sun can do that because it's so large. Um, those temperatures can develop, whereas on the planet, we have to be able to, without all that mass that, say, something like the sun has, be able to overcome the forces inside of the, the atoms and the subatomic particles in order to put them together. Now, I remember when I was back in high school learning about nuclear fission and fusion, and that was the explanation that we were given, was that we cannot achieve that level of heat on Earth have we gotten anywhere close just to sort of give a like sort of as like a set of parameters for the audience have we gotten anywhere close to the necessary minimum amount of heat necessary to generate nuclear fusion so actually we have and we have been for i'd say over 30 years um what we have yet to do is to be able to overcome it and get more energy out of it than we put into it. And that's what would be power production. So it requires on the order of a couple million, hundred million degrees roughly um, in order to overcome that. So you have to put a lot of energy into doing that. Um, and then you have to keep the reaction going, which is the hard part about nuclear fusion. And so we can actually achieve it in the laboratory. And there's quite a number of devices um, here in the United States and across the world that are capable of doing it. Um, it's just a matter of keeping the reaction going by itself and then producing extra energy. That's, that's the difficult part. And that, that's something we haven't achieved yet. Okay, so currently you, you can achieve it, just you, you get a net loss of energy, which makes it not very useful. Exactly. Um, 
Now, what makes 2019, uh, the current year, a potential like really big year for fusion energy? Well, so I think there's a couple of different things. Um, one, I think there's a significant, there's been a significant set of advances in some of the technologies that are sort of what you might call supporting technologies that are needed for nuclear fusion to make it work. So there's materials that have been needed for both, say, just to, what to construct the the containers, if you will, out. Um, there's been a lot of advances in superconducting magnets, which are necessary to the product or to the final um, procedure, if you will. Um, and there have been a lot of advances in the last 10 years or so that have made a lot of new technologies available. And so with that, um, there's been a significant amount of startups um, that have actually been formed in the last several years, uh, to the point where actually there was a fusion uh, energy industry working group that was formed at the end of last year, and it's the first one of its kind. Um, and, and on top of that, and, and I should say also, it's all of these different companies um, have different techniques and different methods. So what I was talking about just a second ago, in the different, in the in the way that we've been achieving fusion in the laboratory, there's kind of only been a few ways that people have gone about doing that, and the companies that have been emerging um, have either been improving those methods or trying completely different methods. Um, and then on top of that, there's been a significant uh, increase in interest in federal spending for the first time in a long long time in the United States and also in other countries, um, particularly in Europe, also in China. Um, uh, Korea and Japan as well invest heavily in it. So I think there's just sort of been this slow uh, progression and development of both our basic science understanding and our both supporting technology development and then the fusion technology itself. So I think it's all kind of coalescing at the right time. Now, uh and you brought something up with like the amount of startups and like federal funding and stuff. There, there really has been like a massive uptick in interest in fusion energy. Like, what do you think sort of sparked that? You know, I, I, it's a question I actually think about quite a bit. Um, I, I, I wish I had a solid answer for you um, because I, I know I became interested in, in graduate school. Um, I think a lot of people become interested in in school. I think um, a lot of younger people are looking. Um, particularly for, you know, innovative ways to, um, you know, to solve the energy problems that, are, that our planet is going to be facing as well as in, you know, clean solutions. Um, I also think there's also been a, you know, a dedicated body of people working in fusion for, you know, 30, 40 years that have been plugging away at this problem um, and, you know, trying to bring others into the fold. So I think it just seems to be, to me, so far as I can tell, it seems to be just something organic that seems to have happened. What are some of the benefits of using fusion energy? In terms of fusion, so one of the big things, or the biggest thing I would say is it's, first of all, pretty much inherently safe. So the, one of the biggest challenges with fusion is actually to keep the reaction going. So I think most people would probably be familiar that one of the biggest safety concerns with fission is keeping the reaction from running away from you. Um, in fusion, the biggest concern is that actually keeping it going. So it's difficult to control, but if in an instance where it's going to get away from you, you want to shut it down, it's quite easy to do. Um, also, while it does produce significant amounts of radiation um, from the reaction, depending on the fuel choice that you, you pick, it's different. It's not quite the same as high-level waste. What you're basically doing is you're irradiating the containers. So you're producing activated materials instead of direct nuclear waste. So while that still produces some forms of waste, it's not quite the same as 
is spent nuclear fuel, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there any other uh, benefits outside of sort of the the safety benefits, like in comparison directly to to fission? Gram for gram for fuel, it's also significantly gets you significantly more energy. Um, So if, you know, a gram of uranium is worth, um, you know, several tons worth of coal, then let's say pick the deuterium tritium reaction that's worth multiple grams, even kilograms of uranium. So it's significantly more powerful. And that sort of kind of brings me to my final big idea question for you. And it's how will our world change once we conquer and are able to harness fusion energy, you know, outside of the lab setting? Well, so I think if we can actually develop a steady, um, functional nuclear fusion power plant that's scalable, if you will, you know, that's small and compact and can, you know, be put into neighborhoods, you can put it basically anywhere. Um, you don't need a particularly large safety zone around it. I mean, you do need some, clearly. But um, it basically, it's, it's power that can go anywhere. And for a relatively small amount of fuel, provide pretty much anybody on the planet unlimited energy. And if you look, a, few, a number of years ago, the National Academy of Engineering um, put out their 14 grand challenges for, um, for humanity, basically. And, you know, energy abundance and energy security was was among them and of course i'm a power engineer so i'm i'm a little bit biased towards it but some of the other ones were things like access to water access to food um mapping the human brain was another one so all these things at the end of the day you need you need energy to power everything um and if we had a safe safe clean emission-free relatively readily available power source that could be provided anywhere on the planet um, without the need to be located by, you know, oceans or away from population centers, um, I think that would be game-changing because then you could do anything with it. Thank you so much for coming on, Lee, and thank you everyone for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com industries and subscribe for previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Sam Kingma, and you have a fantastic rest of your day. Thank you again to Dr. Lee Winfrey, Associate Professor of Nuclear Engineering over at Penn State University for joining us today. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed those two looks at different sources of energy and how they each present different challenges when it comes to alternative energy sources. So uh, there are choices available, there are other options, but each one does present a series of challenges that need to be overcome before we can fully say that we are really implementing this to its fullest potential. So. It'll be interesting to see how these two uh, energy sources develop over the next year and how we're able to use them more efficiently. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. We do have a lot more content just like this over at marketscale.com. If you hit the industries tab right there, we have 14 different industries that we cover, including energy. So maybe you're interested in industries besides energy, you know, whether it's pro AV or IOT or building management. A lot of these industries overlap quite a bit. So there's a lot of content there, both podcasts and written content there for you to consume and enjoy and really uh, dive into. So it's a lot of great stuff over there at marketsigel.com. Make sure to head over and check it out. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Market Scale Energy Podcast. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you for listening.